spending our time dreaming of the church that we want to be this summer. Last week, we spoke very briefly about how we wanted to be a place of change. And I suggested that we all are longing for that kind of change. But we talked about change last week more in the sense of God working in you as an individual, working on your heart, your relationship to Him. But what I want to do today is to try to say that sanctification, our growth that God is wanting to bring to us, is not just an individual matter, but is one that is actually going to extend out into the world around us. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a religious system that kept that in front of me. Uh, When I became a Christian, I remember getting this sense that, like, you know, uh, uh, embracing Jesus was more than just this momentary event. There was rather a mission that God gave to His people once you sort of signed on with Jesus, and we're going to follow Him. But that mission was, was, was kind of unique, I'm realizing now, because what it mostly had to do with was, was about um, going and getting other people to have this experience of knowing Jesus as well. That is, the sort of central activity, the, the highest pinnacle of Christian activity was evangelism and getting other people to believe. Well, what I simply want to uh, pitch at you this morning is, is that maybe that will give you an insight into why when I would read Jesus' words in places like Luke chapter 4 that Toby just read for us, I unconsciously would filter that message through what I would call a spiritual grid. So that when Jesus would talk about, you know, sort of captives being set free and liberty for the oppressed, I would interpret that to mean, we know, spiritual captivity to sin. Or maybe a spiritual liberty from satanic oppression or something like that. And what I began to realize when I went away to seminary was, is that there actually were sort of almost two different strains of American Christianity that divide on that very issue. Uh, There are certain churches that tended to focus in terms of their mission on things like um, theological accuracy, uh, evangelism, personal piety and holiness. Those kinds of churches tended to sort of gravitate towards, shall we say, the right side, the conservative side of the political American spectrum. But then on the other hand, there were other churches that tended to focus on uh, social action movements, uh, uh, political change agents, and and a more liberal approach to how the Bible is interpreted and understood. These people, not surprisingly, tended to move more to the left side of the American political system. Well, so here we are in the midst of a lot of transition as a church. And I simply want to pose a question to us to this text this morning. Which is the right way? In other words, as we as a church, what does it mean for us to be a place of change that's not just about us as individuals, but about the world outside that we have to agree needs change as well? Let me put it to you this way. When Jesus preaches his sermon in Luke chapter 4, is he referring simply to an inward, private, uh, uh, individualized spiritual transformation? Or is he talking about a social, even, dare I say, political, community, justice policy question that might be about changing all of our neighborhoods? Hmm. Well, I want to attempt an answer to that question by looking at the question of history. 
and specifically how the Bible looks at history. And I want to make three points about it. Number one, I want to talk about the flow of biblical history. I want to arrive at the pinnacle of the Bible's history. And then finally, the healing of our history. Okay? Flow, uh, pinnacle, and healing of history. So the flow of history. This is a big one. Because you got to go back to Adam and Eve to get the full sense of this. When Adam and Eve sinned, it's not just that their relationship to God is alienated at that moment. But the Bible teaches that the alienation that they experienced from God began to sort of ripple out like a stone in the middle of a still pond. The ripples began to go out to all of creation. That is, that at a certain point, the whole system of creation was set off course from what it was designed to be. Now, I actually like that word system. What is a system, if you think about it? Well, a system is nothing more than sort of a, con- a collection of connected things that work together to enhance the whole. That's a system. And I, the best illustration I can come up with is a medical illustration, which is entertaining for all medical personnel in the room. They think it's so cute when the preacher tries to act like he understands medicine, but that's okay. Let's take, for instance, your lungs, okay? Your lungs, we would argue, are highly useful to you in your body because they oxygenate your blood and keep you moving and keep your whole body healthy. But let's say, for the sake of illustration, you decide to place yourself and set up camp at the bottom of the deep end of a swimming pool full of water, okay? What happens in that environment? Well, because that's not the environment in which your lungs were made for, your lungs experience alienation. (laughs) And what happens? The rest of your body, once that sort of system has been thrown out of whack, begins to break down and you drown. See the point? Well, what the Bible is saying is, is that Adam and Eve's relationship to God was, like our lungs, (laughs) so central to the rest of the world flourishing that when they messed up their relationship to God, the whole creation began to suffer from decay. Go back and read everything after Adam and Eve's sin, which is Genesis 3. Read chapters like, um, let's say, 4 through 11. It really is nothing more than an extended treatise on just exactly how messed up the world can be because of what happened with our parents' original sin. That is, there's a connection deeply. Well, later on we begin to find that Paul picks up this theme and begins to say that all of the physical, social, spiritual, economic, political, and human ills of humanity are due to sin and misery. This is what Paul says. Paul says in Romans 8, this is a great passage. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You see what he's saying? All of the world around us is waiting for God to make His people Christians. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, talking about Adam and Eve, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Wow! Paul is saying that everything around us, every aspect of God's creation was drugged down by human sin so that they're longing for God to do something about this. Look, now what's my point? The flow of biblical history 
can be stated in this simple phrase. How would you answer this question? What is the Bible about? You're one of those Christian people. What, what is the Bible about? I would suggest that the Bible is the story of God's plan to set the world to rights. To fix what sin and rebellion have done to the entire created order. So that when Jesus picks up to preach his first sermon, he begins to talk about healing of hurts. Why? Because he was speaking to the people who were hurt physically, socially, economically. They understood that crime and famine and wars and greed and oppression had ravaged them as a people. And so Jesus comes along and inaugurates his mission and says simply this, I have come to launch, to inaugurate, if you will, a worldwide global healing. That's why I'm here. Now, why do I mention that? I mention it because there was an implicit message that I got growing up that the whole reason for my becoming a Christian was to get on that good old gospel ship and ride my way into heaven when I died. Now, I don't think that's untrue. But is that all Jesus came to do in the hearts of his people? Maybe it was more than that. So therefore, we get the sense of the flow of of biblical history. Second point, we see, though, the pinnacle of biblical history. Because you've got to realize how radical what Jesus is saying here in this very dramatic scene. He gets up, and everybody's excited. Jesus is back. To read the scripture, hooray for Jesus, they must have thought. So he gets up and he reads through the text of scripture. He mentions these things and then he sits down and uncorks this little gem. Today, what I just read is fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) Whoa, people must have said. Uh, Preacher boy went off to seminary and he's come back with a Messiah complex, it seems. But what is Jesus saying? He's coming and saying, I am here to assert myself as the crux of human history. Everything that God has been doing has been leading to Him. He is going to be the final blow to sin and misery. In other words, there is something that Jesus is going to do in His mission and His work that is going to be so central and instrumental that the entire world will be healed because of it. Well, what is that? Well, as it turns out, the Apostle Paul helps us in yet another place, Ephesians chapter 2. Now look, I'm going to warn you, this is a dense passage, but just let it wash over you for a second, because I want to draw out a couple things from it in Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 16. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's a big phrase, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, look. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the division that existed between Jews, God's chosen people, and Gentiles, everybody else. And he says God is coming here to heal those things. Now, there's a whole lot more in that passage than we got time to unpack here. I just want to draw two observations. Number one, 
I find it fascinating that when the Apostle Paul is talking about God's, what Jesus, the, the meaning of Jesus' work on the cross, he identifies divisions among people as the source of all human misery. Think about this for a second. At the heart of human misery, Paul says, is a divided people. Look, follow the sequence of disaster with Adam and Eve. What happens when Adam and Eve sin for the first time? What do they notice first about each other as soon as they sin? They notice that they're naked. And of course, nakedness in the Bible is a picture of shame. That is, they're ashamed of one another and of themselves. And shame, if you think about it, is always a repellent. You don't ever want to be around the people that you're shamed around. And so suddenly there's a division. And when I'm repelled from someone, I'm alone. And psychiatrists and therapists will tell you that the more alone you are, the more likely you are to result to two bad ways of dealing with your world. On the one hand, you can be a flight person, to run away from life, to isolate yourself. And the more isolated we are, the less healthy we are on the inside. The other kind of reaction when you're alone is you can fight and become someone who is a source of hostility actively. You see the point? It is human divisions. It's the failure of connection to achieve connection that is at the heart of it all. And the world is destroyed because of it, Paul is saying. I wonder how many of you are familiar with the concept of the butterfly effect. I love this idea. Uh, This is a lot of fun. It basically is the theory that the tiniest of actions can create these huge repercussions. So it's kind of a fun thing to sort of scour the internet, as I did, for butterfly effect stories. And my favorite one was this. There was a, um, apparently there were a couple of, um, of Danish factory workers who were hauling uh, a large box through a warehouse. Well, as they were walking it through the warehouse, uh, one of them stumbled and caused them to drop the box. Well, Something in the dropping of the box created friction inside the box, which created a spark, which was bad for a box full of fireworks, Um, especially bad for a box of fireworks that was being hauled through a warehouse full of fireworks. Okay, So it turns out that the resulting fireball from this fire ended up like destroying 350 homes. It caused like a hundred million euro in damage to this town. Um, I, I wonder what it would have been like to interview those poor men that night and then just look and be like, oops, um, a tiny little thing. Somebody stumbled and the entire world is sort of turned upside down. Well, Paul is saying that Adam and Eve's alienation had a butterfly effect. That it sort of rippled out from itself and all human beings from their alienation from each other began to be alienated from each other as well. But secondly, what Paul is saying is, is therefore Jesus did something to conquer the division between us. In verse 16, Paul says that on the cross, God killed the hostility. He destroyed the hostility, which sounds weird because on this cross, it sounds like the only person that was destroyed was Jesus. Ah, but that's a failure to understand what was going on there. It's a profound theological statement. Paul is saying that on the cross, Jesus was absorbing the hostility by becoming the hostility himself. Does that sound weird to you? If it sounds weird to you, you need to go back and read 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Paul says, For God made Him, Jesus, 
who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What does He mean? What He means then is that God on the cross treated Jesus as if He had done all of the things that you and I have been doing to each other since the dawn of time. Racism, oppression, war, family violence, condescension, exclusion. In a word, hostility. God put this all on His Son and He judged Him for it. He killed His Son for it. So that when you become a Christian, your record of hostility toward each other goes to Him. So you know what He does? He takes away the shame. Suddenly the very reason for my, for my disconnection with you is removed. And Paul says the wall is down. And so now not only do we have peace, but we can say, like it says in verse 14, that He Himself is our peace. Jesus becomes our peace. So that, according to the Bible, is the pinnacle of human history. Nothing comes close to that. So we see the flow of history, the pinnacle of history. And then finally we see the healing of history. What is the point? Jesus absorbs the justice of God on the cross so that He could then make us to be agents of justice in the world. That's the point. In other words, Jesus set in motion a new butterfly effect. That is, on the cross, He comes to deal with our relationship to the law so that we can then go out and serve the people who are most vulnerable. Uh, Tim Keller, in his uh, little book, Generous Justice, describes a group of people as the quartet of the vulnerable. He says it's the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. All four of those, Christians' eyes tend to train upon. Why? Because we know what it's like to be freed from the injustice of the world. And so we look for those people. Here's the point. History is following on a path of God enacting a great healing for the world. And he's doing so one relationship at a time. You know, last week we talked about the fact that God begins His work in you as an individual. He's going to set you apart and make you holy. But once He's done that, He's going to push you out to become an agent of reconciliation. of Someone who promotes justice. In other words, He doesn't allow us to kind of sit in the midst of our fighting or our flighting, depending on which you are more inclined to. But there's one thing I want to deal with very briefly before we finish, and that's this, and that is how he's going to enact this. And this is where some of the questions start. I believe that there is a lot of wisdom in the church, and this is true for our denomination as well, to stay and keep its mission in the area of dealing with people's hearts. Now, for a moment, please understand, when I say church, I don't mean all the Christians in the world. I'm talking about this little institution, this organization that we have here called Christ Presbyterian Church. I believe the church does its best when it sets a priority over the human heart. That is, Jesus' healing that He's bringing is bringing to start His work with individuals that goes out. But the organization of a church has the primary goal, the primary responsibility to minister and declare God's will to the world and that we want to see move on after that. But we do believe that the work in relief, in social relief organizations, is best done by Christians who then go from the church 
into every area of life. That is, the church sticks with what she is good at when God's people go out and pound into the world to do what they are good at. That's the pattern. But having established the fact that the church majors in that particular activity, that does not mean that we avoid topics when they appear to us in Scripture that directly address the social problems of our day. In other words, a Christian is not allowed to simply be utterly dismissive on the questions that plague us. Questions of immigration, refugee management, poverty, any place where human suffering occurs in the world that is directly mentioned in the Bible, we ought not be silent on. And if we are, we don't, we don't, we're not faithfully preaching the Word. Um, what we can't do is pass over those difficult topics of God's mind about those things because we just don't want the church to get political. This reminds me of a conversation I had a number of years ago um, uh, that, 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 wrote, that I was reminded of when I was interviewing for this job. Uh, your search committee came and asked me very directly what I uh, would do, if I was your pastor, to help emphasize this church's, one of this church's core values of looking like the kingdom. Did you aware of this? That there is an identity statement that this church lives by, one a statement of which says that they want to look like the kingdom. And specifically we mean that we would like for our community here to reflect the same racial diversity that exists in Oxford Lafayette County. And they were asking me what that was, how much I cared for that. And, but, and, I simply, and we had a lot of conversation about that. But I simply want to indulge you for a moment, ask you to indulge me, on what I think is one hindrance to looking like the kingdom. And it came across in a conversation I had with an African-American leader in our denomination uh, in a conversation we were having. <clears throat> and I sat down with him, and I was expressing that I was fairly hopeful about the future of our denomination, of God sort of healing some of these racial uh, problems that we had inside of our church. And I could tell that he sort of forced a smile on his face. To which I said, what? And what he basically said was to me, was he said, Les, you know, when you go to passages like Luke chapter 4, if you are thinking of that text as being purely spiritual, I need you to know that it sounds to my community's ears, the African-American community, like you're making excuses. And I said, okay. I said, but I don't want to politicize the pulpit. He said, neither do I. But if the question of what it means for me to be a good citizen in my neighborhood never comes up in our sermons, doing nothing about the tangible physical oppression that's going on in my very town, it feels like you're doing that to avoid those topics just so you can still feel good about yourself. At which time I changed the subject because it made me feel uncomfortable. Now look, you might disagree with his assessment of how the African-American community feels. You might disagree with the assessment that there's oppression around there, but I simply want you to know that when God talks about the change that we're looking for as a church, He wants to see that in every area of life. For us to highlight those things and to be agents of hostility destruction. I was reading an article this semester about uh, the police force uh, in Camden, New Jersey, of all places. I don't even know where Camden, New Jersey is. But apparently, they had, in the last year or so, they have had a dramatic drop in crime in their particular area. 
And they were interviewing the police chief who basically said that they began to identify the problem and that was the mindset of the police officers. He said, it seemed as if we had a lot of people that had the mindset of their job as being sort of a special ops uh, uh, sort of a team of people. We're trying to teach them to be more like Peace Corps people. He said, our old mantra, to quote him, he says, the old police mantra was to make it home safely. And now we're being taught, not only should we make it home safely, but so should the victim and the suspect. Huh. Well, now I wonder where that could have come from. To treat a potential criminal like they're a human being. To see sameness or unity in the eyes of a perpetrator of violence. Now look, I don't have any idea about the spiritual temperature of the police force in Camden, New Jersey. But I can say that that's a biblical notion. And it ought to be highlighted and thanked for God shedding His common grace in places like that. Look, is there still hostility going on today? If you have to ask that question, I'm assuming that you, I'm assuming that you don't have either a Facebook or a Twitter account. We have gotten savage in social media in our day. I mean, all kinds of things. Do we really think that there's no more work to be done for Christians in the area of poverty? in the area of mass incarceration, in the area of political demonizing, in the area of media disinformation, in the area of discrimination in the workplace. We could go on and on. In a word, it's hostility. And I hope it doesn't sound like too much of a Sunday school answer to say, we need Jesus. Uh, Revelation 22, I'll finish with this, has one of my favorite sort of verses where it describes a tree that is in heaven, that sits by a crystal river. And in chapter 22, verse 2, it says, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. I love Christ's presence theme because it talks about a hope that we have. The hope is the hope of the cross and of the gospel that only Jesus can affect. But then we say that that hope has created a home, a home that the Bible calls the church. But that church is intending to be an agent of healing, if I could throw in a third H word, for our, for our communities. Isn't that what we long for? And is this a place where at least maybe we could have the discussion about it? I don't know. Is that the kind of church you want to be in? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the kind of church we want to be in is the place where you are, because if we are in you, if we are intimately tied to you, Uh, We are at one with you. And being at one with you, we see walls of hostility coming down. Would you help us to do that? Maybe even this morning, Father, you would bring walls down between us as we seek to happen around us. But we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.